Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Dr. Van Slyke just finished up the Protestant Revolution. He's going to be heading all the way into the post-Vatican II period uh, and really beyond, so he's got a lot to cover. And with that, please welcome back Dr. Daniel Van Slyke. I was speaking to my wife this afternoon, and as usual, I was working hard to prepare for my talk. And I told her I was a little concerned about it. And she said, don't, don't worry, I'm sure you won't run out of things to say. <laughs> I said, that's not what I'm worried about. I have too much to say and too little time. 45 minutes, my goodness. Um, and then the, the thing is that the last hour, I definitely want to devote to Pope Benedict the 16th, so that you can understand and uh, appreciate the wonderful things that he's actually doing for divine worship, even as we speak. So if we don't get all the way through this period between Trent and the Second Vatican Council, you'll have to forgive me, but I'm going to try. The previous segment of this series of three talks began by positing the twofold purpose of sacred worship the glorification of God and the sanctification of man. Beginning from the fundamental presupposition that the first and final purpose of divine worship and above all of the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the glorification of the Most Holy Trinity. We then proceeded with the overarching thesis of these talks, of this series. And that thesis is that would-be reformers who do not keep foremost in their minds the fact that the Mass is, above all things, the glorification and praise of God, will ruin the Mass by using it as an instrument to achieve other ends. Martin Luther's reform of the Mass and communion service served to illustrate this thesis, beginning with a set of theological presuppositions that he wished to enforce through liturgical practice, Luther opened the door to a veritable cacophony of widely differing manners of celebrating or of not celebrating the Lord's Supper. In response to the liturgical chaos ushered in by Luther and early Protestants, the fathers of the Council of Trent initiated a salutary restoration of the Mass to what they deemed to be its ancient form, its 11th century form, promulgated by Pope St. Pius V in 1570, the Roman Missal of the Tridentine period enabled a stable, noble, and sacred celebration of the Mass throughout the Western Catholic world. This hour will be dedicated to outlining two subsequent attempts to reform the Mass, attempts which led at least in part to a ruin. First, the revision of Mass books at the hands of Gallicanist clergy in 17th and 18th century France. And the second is the reform of the Mass that was championed by the liturgical movement of the mid-20th century. 
In response to the Gallicanist revisions, Dom Prosper Guéranger spearheaded the restoration of the Roman Mass in France in the 19th century. The restoration of the Roman Mass in the 20th and 21st centuries began late in the pontificate of Pope John Paul II and continues today under the leadership of Benedict XVI. The final of our three sessions will be devoted entirely to Pope Benedict XVI's vision of the sacred liturgy and to the gentle initiatives he has taken towards restoration of the Roman Mass. But now let's turn to Gallicanism and liturgical ruin in post-Tridentine France. The Roman Missal of 1570, along with the Congregation of Rites established in 1588, were to safeguard the faithful against liturgical innovations by certain celebrants and against regional decisions that might have been made arbitrarily with regard to the liturgy by bishops. The predominance of this Roman Missal, this Tridentine Missal, if you will, was to face many challenges even within the Catholic fold. Perhaps the most remarkable of these challenges was the one posed by Gallicanism. Gallicanism is a broad term given to a set of theological, political, juridical doctrines and practices which characterized the life of the church in France until about the 19th century. For our purposes, two characteristics of Gallicanism are noteworthy. First, Gallicanism insisted on the juridical independence of the churches of France from Roman control, as well as the control of any other factor or leader outside of France itself. Second, Gallicanism tended to argue that the Pope's power over the universal church was limited. Some Gallicanists, for example, were conciliarists who believed that a council could depose a pope. These attitudes, characteristic of Gallicanism, extended even into the realm of liturgy and often translated into conscious attempts to depart from Roman practice in more or less subtle ways in the very celebration of Mass. In the hands of reformers who subscribed to Gallicanism, the Mass became an occasion to assert theological, spiritual, juridical, even political independence from the Pope and from the Roman Missal. Paris was the seedbed for this movement within Gallicanism. This movement that would reduce the Tridentine Mass to a kind of anarchy. In 1680, the Archbishop of Paris, Francois du Harlay, set a commission in charge of revising local liturgical books. This is 110 years after the Roman Missal of the Council of Trent. The Parisian Commission, in its enthusiasm, attacked the Roman Missal, taking as its point of departure the principle that all texts that are not from sacred scripture must be eliminated. That led to the elimination of a good deal of texts and the rewriting of quite a bit within the Roman Missal. The result was astonishingly destructive. It was a different book by the time these revisers were finished with it. After Francois du Harlay, subsequent Parisian bishops continued revising and republishing the Missal of Paris, which also was adopted by many other dioceses in France. These other dioceses, however, soon followed the pattern set in Paris by producing their own missals for the celebration of Mass. The variety soon became overwhelming. The missals printed during the 18th century 
in the French diocese have several characteristics in common that would indicate a Gallican mentality. First of all, prefaces, collects, secrets, post-communion prayers, these are all the proper prayers of the Mass, were lengthened with comments added to make them more personal, more directed to the people of the diocese. Prayers and antiphons were rearranged around the gospel of the day, rewritten at times, so that the Mass would have a more obvious theme. A simplified liturgy was also promoted, celebrated in the popular language, the vernacular language, wherever possible. And certain kinds of ceremonies were stripped away, as well as altar cloths, candles, etc. Some of the innovations were introduced by bishops with a genuine concern for the spiritual welfare of their clergy and diocese. While at the other extreme, there were those who were simply content to see their name, titles, and coat of arms on the title page of their diocesan liturgical books. You had a wide variety in French bishops. Since some of the innovations had been made without reference to the tradition, they assumed a somewhat arbitrary nature And when they had ceased to have meaning or relevance, they were discarded and replaced. And this is witnessed by the piles and piles of these books that we have from this period in France. The liturgical division within the Church of France that we've just illustrated by discussing the Gallican liturgical books, again to repeat, each diocese basically wound up producing its own liturgical books. And the goal was to do something different, to assert your own independence Sometimes the books were better as a result, sometimes they were worse, but what you did have was a wide variety of different ways of celebrating the Mass in France in the 17th, 18th, and into the 19th centuries. This liturgical division within the Church of France did not serve it well when the French Revolution broke out in 1789. The French Revolution changed liturgical diversity into liturgical confusion. And one way it did so was by reducing the number of dioceses. The civil constitution of the clergy reduced the number of dioceses in France from 140 to 83, which corresponded basically with the civil departments of the government. Then following the Concordat with Napoleon in 1801, the dioceses of France were reduced again from 83 to 60. By this point, you could have one diocese that within its geographical area was using three or four different versions of the Missal. So even within the same diocese now, you have a confusion as to what Mass should be offered. Going back to 1789, the anti-clericalism of the French Revolution didn't help the situation. And when priests were arrested, imprisoned, and tortured, and round up in large numbers from the various dioceses of France preparing for their executions, they could not offer a common mass together according to a common rite. You see the disadvantages of this wide variety. They couldn't pray the divine office together either, which is also known as the Liturgy of the Hours, because again, those books were being tinkered with as well. The liturgical fragmentation of the church in France continued well into the 19th century. This liturgical fragmentation did break out in other areas as well, It was mainly driven by secularizing leaders of governments who were trying to assert their authority and their independence from Rome and other foreign powers. Perhaps the greatest example of this is called Josephism. It's part of the policy of the Emperor Joseph II. That's from 1765 to 1790 of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. 
The key question here was transferring authority in the church from the universal, from one international authority to which everyone looked, to the local church itself. That's really what the Gallicanists were trying to do, what these other secularizing leaders were trying to do. They were trying to keep everything in-house. If you're French, make everything French. If you're German, make everything German, including the liturgical books, including the celebration of the Mass. The problem is, of course, that this is not in keeping with the divine constitution of the Church, which is universal in nature. It's Catholic. So much then for Gallicanism and its effects upon the Mass. Right now we're going to turn to Dom Prosper Guéranger, the French Benedictine monk who, more than anybody else, contributed to bettering this situation by spreading the Roman Missal, promulgated first by Pope St. Pius V, throughout the Diocese of France. Guéranger's restoration of the Holy Mass took place on two fronts. First, he sought to displace the great variety of Gallican Missals with the Roman Missal. So just as a practical matter to spread the use of the Roman Missal. But second, he endeavored to train both clergy and laity in the riches of the existing Roman Missal so they could appreciate it and celebrate it with greater benefit. Let's look at Dom Prosper a little bit more and then we will consider exactly how he accomplished these things. Ordained a priest in 1827, Guéranger revived the Benedictine Abbey in Salem in 1833. These monasteries had been suppressed during the French Revolution. Monks and priests had been executed by the hundreds. So the 19th century revival of the monastic life in France is in itself something very noteworthy. He became the abbot of Salem in 1837. Again, it's a community that he founded. Guéranger devoted his life's work to careful and prayerful celebration of the sacred liturgy, in part through the study of and promotion of Gregorian chant, which is very particular to the Roman Rite. Salem became a center for the celebration and the dissemination of the Roman Rite. Now let's look at how he disseminated it. That was the first way that he helped clean up or restore liturgy in France. In a lengthy study titled Institutions Liturgiques, the Liturgical Institutions, published in 1840 and 1841 in two volumes, Guéranger embarked upon an extensive and scathing critique of the Gallican liturgical chaos introduced by the overwhelming variety of liturgical books in France. Guéranger argued instead for a simple, pure, and uniform liturgy one Mass shared by all, and particularly he recommended for this the Roman Rite. In no small part owing to Guéranger's efforts, the Roman Rite was indeed restored throughout all of France. The restoration of the Roman Mass to France was successful not only because of his efforts, but also owing to two other factors. One of them was the decline of Gallicanism, which didn't long survive the French Revolution. The French clergy learned that allying yourself to the local government and cutting off ties with the Pope in Rome doesn't always work to your benefit. It can, in fact, have bloody and devastating results. But also the personality and plight of Pope Pius IX. Pope Pius IX was an extremely popular pope throughout Europe. He's the first pope of whom we have holy cards, little pictures with his face on them and prayers. So he was a household name and a household face 
for Catholics throughout Europe. And he had a wonderful winning personality, and he was long-suffering at the hands of Italian politics. And so he had many sympathies. And we can't underestimate his role in the modern papacy. He really gave the papacy a new face. We have had wonderful popes for the last 200 years. Garanger enjoyed the support of Monsignor Parisis, the Bishop of Langres, who made the Roman Rite the general rule for his entire diocese in 1839. So there are bishops now on Garanger's side. That's the second factor that will help him spread the Roman Rite in France. Synod after synod after synod will follow the lead of Bishop Parisis and will actually adopt the Roman Rite in addition to the new popularity of the Pope and the decline of Gallicanism, that means that the Roman Rite now will come to predominate in France by 1875. In addition to restoring the Roman Rite to France, Garanger sought to restore the Mass to its rightful place in the lives of the faithful. So here's where we get to the second program of Dom Prosper Garanger. I don't know if you're familiar with the term Dom. That's a title of Benedictine monks. It's used a lot in Europe. It's sometimes used here in the States as well. Drawing inspiration from sacred scripture and the early fathers, Garanger labored strenuously to restore liturgical piety to the very heart of the Christian life. In other words, to have the spirituality of all Christians centered on and focused on and informed by the celebration of the sacred liturgy and the liturgical year, the cycles of the liturgical year. Garanger spearheaded these efforts through his masterful 11-volume work, which is translated as The Liturgical Year. These volumes offer meditations on the liturgical texts, feasts, and the scriptures for the year as they're found in the Roman Missal. They're a wonderful source for getting into the spirituality of the extraordinary form, as we call it today, of the Roman Mass. Note the crucial method of Garanger's efforts to restore the celebration of the Mass to the center of Christian life. He did not advocate changing the Mass. This is very important. He did not advocate changing the Mass, but rather forming the faithful so that they could more deeply appreciate and enter into the mysteries of the Mass and of the divine worship services. That is going to be a contrast with the liturgical movement of the 20th century. Following the work of Garanger, Pope St. Pius X, in his 1903 instruction on sacred music, Trilace Lecitudini, called active participation in the liturgy the foremost and indispensable font of the true Christian spirit. So like Garanger, in this document, Pius X, promoted knowledge and participation in Gregorian chant as a major vehicle for entering into and participating in the Mass. End of section 2. So far we've looked at the variety of Gallicanist liturgies, and in particular missals, those are Mass books, in France, which led to disastrous consequences during the French Revolution. Then we turn to Dom Prosper Garanger's efforts in France to restore the Roman Rite and then to engage the faithful so that they could deeply appreciate and follow and celebrate and inform their lives with the liturgical year as it unfolds in the Roman Missal. 
Now we're going to look at the ambiguities of the liturgical movement of the 20th century. It starts off in 1909 with a famous talk by Dom Lombard Baudouin, another Benedictine monk. This is the beginning of the first of several stages in the liturgical movement, which we could periodize in different ways. No matter how you chop them up, however, they begin in 1909 and they end with the Second Vatican Council. Because at the Second Vatican Council, two things become of the persons involved in the liturgical movement. Some of them wind up working for the church and endeavoring to help implement the new rites, the rites that are revised after the Second Vatican Council. The others go off and promote ever more radical changes. Maybe you've met some of them. They're insufferable. They teach in a lot of schools. My colleagues. Yes. One of the reasons I don't attend those theological conferences anymore. So let's look now at the 20th century liturgical movement. In its earliest stage, the liturgical movement was marked by the efforts of scholars such as Adrian Fortescue, Romano Guardini, Theodore Vestling, Virgil Michael, Pius Parsh, Martin Hellriegel, Odo Cassell, Anton Baumstark, and Gerald Ellard. Those are some names, so you have a list of who's who. We could go on about each of their contributions. These were very important figures. Most of them are from Western Europe. Uh, Virgil Michael worked in the United States, but he actually went to Western Europe to learn about the liturgical movement before he came back to Collegeville in Minnesota. For the most part, these representatives of the first phase of the liturgical movement followed the project of Guéranger. They sought to return liturgical piety or participation in the traditional liturgy to a central place in the lives of the faithful. On the other hand, a number of them did begin to open themselves up to the idea that they should reform the liturgy itself. And noteworthy among them are Baudouin and Parsh, and they began experimenting with different ways of conducting the liturgy. In the next phase of the liturgical movement, a simple openness for reform will turn into a clarion call for reform, indeed a demand for reform, that is accompanied by efforts to bring the reform about. This second phase of the liturgical movement begins, or we can start it anyway, with the Second World War, and it ends with the Second Vatican Council. During this period, the liturgical movement exerts increasing pressure for reform. The movement's goals shift from forming the faithful to participate in the existing liturgy to reforming the liturgy so that modern man can participate in it. And I used that phrase, modern man, very explicitly. It was used all the time in the documents of the period. The balance of the early liturgical movement gradually diminished before the consensus of a small but increasingly influential group of scholars from Western Europe. These scholars occupied newly founded liturgical institutes in Trier in Germany, for example, in Paris, in uh, Montserrat in Spain, and they also peopled a number of international scholarly conferences which took place during the period. Among the working principles of this small and influential group of scholars who came to dominate the liturgical movement in the post-war period, three of their working principles are worthy of note. First, they begin to conflate the ecumenical movement with the liturgical movement. So ecumenical concerns are brought into the revision that this project of liturgical reform. 
They want to use the mass as an instrument of bringing union among the separated churches or Protestant brethren. Second, they very much dive into historicism, the study of the history of rites, especially the mass in the early Christian period, and they see it as a pattern that should be followed today. We can call that archaeologism, uh, the efforts to find from the past things that we should do in the present, the presupposition being that what takes place in the meantime should be discarded. Uh, that means anything that developed in the medieval or the Tridentine periods. And so they very consistently reject what they call medieval accretions, things added to the Mass in the Middle Ages, as well as the Tridentine Mass, or the extraordinary form as we know it today. And third, they appeal to extremely ambiguous categories uh, which fall under the rubric of pastoral. Pastoral. I don't know if any of you have heard people use this phrase before, but anything can be pastoral or not pastoral depending on if the person speaking to you wants to do it or not do it. Have you uh, experienced this? A very loose category. So let me once again repeat these three principles that we're going to dwell upon of the more radical reformers of the mid-20th century within the liturgical movement are the conflation of ecumenism with liturgy, number one. Number two, an archaeologizing approach to history to try to dig up and represent ancient practices. And number three, an appeal to this category of pastoral. Let's say a few more things about the last of those. Appeals to a pastoral approach become evident in calls for reconstruction and innovation according to the perceived needs of modern man. This became part of, if not the very basis of, the agenda of some key liturgists, including Annibale Bugnini, J.D. Crichton, Clifford Howell, and John Murphy. These figures would cast aside objective liturgical tradition in favor of what appears to be the quickest and easiest route to the pastoral goal of liturgical participation. And just another word on that, modern man is very difficult to pin down because he's always changing. That's the difficulty of trying to keep up with the culture and the church. Uh, that happened in the 60s, and now we still sing songs from the 60s in the Mass. And that gives you an idea of how it works. Modern man has gone beyond the 60s, but church music in some cases doesn't. Now, let's look at this uh, first of the three principles that I had mentioned, which was the conflation of ecumenism with the liturgical movement. From this perspective, the liturgical movement follows its founder, really, Baudouin. For a period, Baudouin joined an ecumenical monastery. He was eventually asked to leave because so many of the Catholics were converting to Lutheranism in this ecumenical monastery. But what you'll see arising from these circles now is something very Lutheran, which we discussed in our first session, an attack on the canon of the Mass. You'll recall that Luther despised it because it's all about sacrifice, a cesspool, he called it and he had to cut out everything except the words of institution. Just to give you an idea of how this merged with the liturgical movement, in 1951, the first International Liturgical Study Week in Europe was devoted to the theme, Problems of the Roman Missal. Around the same time, Cipriano Vagagini wrote a book, 
titled The Problem of the Roman Canon. In the 16th century, only a Protestant could have written a book with that title. As a matter of fact, Melanchthon did write a book with a very similar title. Now, I'm going to step back for a moment and provide an overarching assessment of the liturgical movement. The problem with this mid-20th century liturgical movement is the problem noted with Luther's reform of the Mass. He lost sight of its primary purpose, the glorification of God. Instead of focusing on God, the key scholars of the liturgical movement saw in the liturgy an opportunity to further their own agendas. Agendas offered even with the best of intentions. Agendas that were pastoral to meet the needs of modern man and political. One thing we can't underestimate is the aversion to fascism which had taken over the countries wherein many of these liturgists, these mid 20th century liturgists were working. And in reaction against fascism, many of them turned towards socialism and communism. And they wanted to see these ideals of equality in the liturgy as well as in society. Uh, to give you a concrete example, that's what's behind round churches. Oops, I'm sorry. <laughs> this one's octagonal, right? Okay, there are theological ideas as well. There are historical ideas. We see that the pet historical theories of this small group of liturgists wind up being translated and imposed into liturgical practice. And finally, their ecumenical purposes they also seek to fulfill by manipulating the Mass. Losing sight of the primary purpose of liturgy then turned the liturgy into a tool or instrument to serve all of these other purposes. And like Luther, the key figures of the liturgical movement found their lack of reverence for the living and received tradition taken to extremes by a subsequent generation of even more radical reformers. If you want to find examples, open up the pages of the premier liturgical journal in the United States, Worship. And you'll also find them in the key liturgical center of study in the United States, the Catholic Liturgical Studies, which is at the University of Notre Dame. In the pages of Worship, and in programs offered through Notre Dame, influential American scholars, such as Nathan Mitchell, Aidan Kavanaugh, continued to push radical agendas as far as they could possibly go, especially in the direction of merging with Protestant practices. Through publications, conferences, academic programs, summer institutes, these scholars have left their impress on the post-Vatican II generations of pastors and their lay collaborators across the United States of America. As an aside, I'm going to put in a plug for an alternative journal called Antiphon, a journal for liturgical renewal, which I worked on with a number of collaborators in the Society for Catholic Liturgy. Our goal was to provide another outlet, an outlet where theologians and architects and musicians and historians who look at liturgy from the heart of the church without agendas for reform can actually publish articles. Uh, there aren't many such venues. It's certainly not in the United States. So if you want to subscribe to something, Antiphon, a journal for liturgical renewal, Society for Catholic Liturgy, www.liturgysociety.org. <laughs> so the results of this radicalization, if you will, of the movement in the post-Vatican two years are evident to us, and I don't really want to catalog them for fear of leaving something out. Uh, but I'll summarize with some broad statements. A lack of clarity 
there's a lack of clarity. Priests and laity are often confused as to what can be done and what can't be done. I often get the question, can the priest really do this at Mass? And the answer is often not as simple as you would think it is. Destabilization. This is a key of the radical liturgists that are still very active. They want a liturgy that's ever-changing, ever being enculturated, ever on the cutting edge of the latest fashions. Decentralization in the Gallican style. You will find a veritable hatred of Rome and all things Roman among some of these liturgical scholars. They are my colleagues. I have seen this. And experimentation, creativity, always something new, always the idea that we can come up with something better. In all of this, what is lost or obscured? In other words, what had become the problem with the liturgy, stamped by the excesses of the scholars who dominated the liturgical movement in the 20th century? In order to answer this question, listen to the words of Pope Pius XII in his beautiful encyclical on the liturgy, Mediator Dei, which I would put on your reading list. Three I'm quoting, three characteristics of which our predecessor, Pope Pius X spoke, so this is Pius XII quoting Pius X, should adorn all liturgical services. What are these three characteristics? A sacredness which abhors any profane influence. Nobility, which true and genuine arts should serve and foster. And universality, which while safeguarding local and legitimate custom, reveals the Catholic unity of the church. End quote. Once again, characteristics that should adorn all sacred liturgy, all celebrations of the Mass, according to Pope Pius XII, who is quoting Pope Pius X, are three, sacredness, nobility, and universality. These, by the way, three characteristics belong to Gregorian chant. Uh, that's what Pope St. Pius X was talking about in Trales Lecitudini. They're sacred, it is uh, noble, and it's universal. It belongs to nobody's culture, nobody's time. Thus far, then, we've discussed the liturgical movement. It began with fine intentions, and it continued and became ever more radical as it went along until in the post-Vatican II period with the liturgical movement officially over, we have still very active radicals who are taking those principles of the liturgical movement and its reformers to their ultimate conclusions and especially because those reformers didn't have regard for the living and received tradition. That is the tradition as it was actually being practiced. They sought instead to revive their theories of ancient Christian practices and to revise current practices in order to meet the perceived needs of modern man, which are very difficult to pin down. I think I'm going to have to stop here. Yes, I would like to talk about the reforms of the Second Vatican Council, but with only a few minutes remaining, I'm afraid that I cannot. That'll be a topic. We'll take our break. Thank you very much, Doctor. Yes. Okay, we'll just take a short break, but before we do, I do want to recommend the doctor was mentioning Don Prosper Garanger's The Liturgical Year. And if you go to Daily Mass, I would highly recommend this set of texts. Very well done. I just looked it up on the internet while we were doing the program. It's now gone out of print, unfortunately. Laredo Press put it into print. 
just a few years ago. I have a copy of it. Um, it is excellent. So if you want to kind of go to the next level in your spiritual life in preparation with the liturgy, I highly, highly recommend this text. Dom Prosper Garanger is the liturgical year. I think you can still pick it up for about 165 bucks online. It's hardbound, Kathy. It's okay. It's worth it. Trust me. It's worth it. I wouldn't recommend if it wasn't worth it. So anyways, okay, we're going to take our break. All right, doctor, you're on. The vision of Pope Benedict XVI. I think you still got to finish up with a little bit of Vatican II destruction stuff, right? I do? Yeah. I think well, so. They want to hear about the clown mass and everything. We're not on recording, are we? No, okay. All right, go ahead, doctor. Thank you very much. Well, I am going to say uh, a few things about the post- Vatican II Mass that are problematic, but I'm not going to use my own words. I'm going to use the words of Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI. One of the great contributions he made while he was still Cardinal was that he began to criticize the situation that so many people were experiencing in their parishes. He saw the suffering of the faithful, and he was one of the very few bishops, ecclesiastics, who was brave enough to actually talk about it and sympathetic and pastoral enough uh, to take it seriously. And that cry that came from the faithful got louder and louder and louder until, as I said before, late in the pontificate of Pope John Paul II, a point at which I would think he was relying on Cardinal Ratzinger quite a bit, he actually began to address it. So the working assumption of this next session is that we all agree with Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI, that the liturgy is in a crisis. Most agree that the present liturgical state of the Roman Rite is not all it should be, nor what it was intended to be in the liturgical movement or even by the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. I didn't do this, but if we were to look at the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which I highly recommend to all of you, it's only about 25, 30 pages long, you can find it on the internet, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy by the Second Vatican Council. You'll see that the specific reforms that it calls for in the Mass are rather few, rather simple. And it says nothing about most characteristic experiences that we have when we attend Mass today. For example, the Second Vatican Council says nothing about the direction the priest faces during the Eucharistic prayer. The Second Vatican Council promotes Gregorian chant as being the music suitable to the Mass, just as much as Pope St. Pius X did in 1903. The Second Vatican Council does not say that Latin should be eliminated from the Mass. In fact, it says that Latin should be preserved and presumes that it should be. The Second Vatican Council doesn't say anything about people receiving communion in the hand. There again, many people are under the misconception that these are mandates from the Second Vatican Council. Indeed, they are not. And in fact, you won't find those things in any demanded or commanded in any liturgical or teaching documents of the magisterium from the Second Vatican Council to this day. There is no document that mandates the direction the priest faces during the Eucharistic prayer, for example. So our typical experience of the Mass indeed doesn't appear to be what the fathers of the Second Vatican Council intended. And when we do criticize, if we do criticize, the Mass as it's celebrated, keep in mind that that is not a criticism necessarily of the Second Vatican Council itself. 
the key question really would be, is what we experience in our parishes what the Second Vatican Council intended? And on the basis of the documents alone, I would say no. I'm proposing this because these things are going to be changing a little bit in the future. The Second Vatican Council left to the charge of the Pope the responsibility to gather a commission that would then actually implement the liturgical books. Uh, that commission we can call the Concilium for implementing the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium. It has a big name. Just as the Council of Trent had entrusted to the Pope the task of overseeing the revision of the Roman liturgical books in the 16th century, the Council of Trent did the same thing. In other words, neither the Council of Trent nor the Second Vatican Council actually produced any liturgical books. And if we could, 50 years ago, say that the Roman Missal, promulgated after the Council of Trent, in some ways could be improved, then we can say the same thing today of the Roman Missal promulgated after the Second Vatican Council. Rome certainly knows this well. That's why it's now in its third edition. First edition was 1970. Second edition was 1975. The third typical edition was 2002 of the Roman Missal after the Second Vatican Council. Now, you're all aware that we're going to receive new translations. The translations we have right now and that we're using are actually translations of the 1970 Missal. You might say our English translations are a little bit behind. So even there, we needed a new translation. But again, the fact that the pontiff, the Roman authorities, continue to edit the mass book that we call the Roman Missal shows us that it too can be continually improved. But I'll go a step further to say that it's very rare that any of us experience that missile in our parishes. What happens in a lot of our parishes is the tail wags the dog, if you will. I have a priest friend who jokes about your typical parish mass being a hymn sandwich. A hymn sandwich. You have a vernacular hymn at the beginning, a vernacular hymn at the end, and you have some vernacular hymns in the middle. And the character of the mass is actually determined by the genre of the song. So if somebody asks, what mass are you attending? I'm going to the youth mass, that means rock music. I'm going to the folk mass, well, that's the, uh, the stuff, or the praise mass. Uh, I'm going to the morning mass, that means I want to get up before the musicians. <laughs> yes. The sacred music is actually meant to serve the liturgy, not to dominate it. And when we have a situation where the personality of the priest and the style of the music are dominating our experience of the sacred liturgy, we are not experiencing what the Second Vatican Council Fathers intended. Cardinal Ratzinger knows this very well. He devoted many years of his life, much effort to studying these problems and was never afraid to point them out. Liturgy, why is it important? It's important because liturgy because divine worship is actually at the core of our faith. This is not a side issue. If we were to go on with the problems after the Second Vatican Council, we should ask ourselves, do more people participate? Well, if you go to churches in Europe, they're empty. Whatever is happening in the Mass is not involving more people. And even here in the United States, it's my understanding now that the second largest religious affiliation is ex-Catholic. That should lead us to think that there's something that can be improved about the Mass 
which is the primary experience that most Catholics have with their faith. It would be nice if they had daily experience with it, but it's often not the case. So, Ratzinger is sensitive to this issue because he loves the faith, and he loves Christ, and he recognizes that liturgy is at the core of the Christian faith. I will quote from his Ratzinger report. This was an interview done in the 80s. Behind the various ways of understanding liturgy, there are different ways of understanding the church, and consequently God and man's relation to him. The question of liturgy is not peripheral. The council itself reminded us that we are dealing here with the very core of the Christian faith. End quote. Because liturgy is at the core of the church's faith, a crisis in the liturgy is a crisis in the church. Here I'll quote from his memoirs called Milestones. These are wonderful reading, uh, by the way. Quote, I am convinced that the crisis in the church that we are experiencing is to a large extent due to the disintegration of the liturgy. When the community of faith, the worldwide unity of the church and her history, and the mystery of the living Christ are no longer visible in the liturgy, where else then is the church to become visible in her spiritual essence? Then the community is celebrating only itself, an activity that is utterly fruitless. Celebrating ourselves is a fruitless activity. And once again, the point he's making here, the crisis in the liturgy, the disintegration of the liturgy, has led to a crisis in the faith. Because the liturgy is a place where the faithful learn the faith and express it. It's where the faith is made visible. The true celebration of the sacred liturgy, then, is the center of any renewal of the church whatsoever. That also is a quotation from Cardinal Ratzinger. There is a fundamental continuity between the actions and teachings of Cardinal Ratzinger on the liturgy and the actions and teachings of Pope Benedict XVI. He expresses really the same views before election to the papacy that he expresses after. And furthermore, I'll add that the cardinals of the church who elected him to be pope were very well aware of his liturgical views. You couldn't not be aware of Cardinal Ratzinger's liturgical views and be a cardinal of the church. So that would seem to indicate that they have some sympathy with the thesis that the liturgy is in crisis and that this has caused or is contributing to, in a major way, a crisis in the church. As an aside, let me apologize to all of you who have beautiful, pristine, noble, sacred, universal-feeling celebrations of the Mass on Sunday. Obviously, this is not meant for you. Most of us think that some improvement could be made. Now, let's look at Ratzinger on the liturgy before his election to the papacy. So this is pre-2005. As a young peritus of the Second Vatican Council, which he did attend, uh, peritus is a theological advisor to the bishops, Ratzinger was enthusiastic about the potential for a reform of the liturgy. This was not something that he opposed at the time of the council, or even now. After the council closed in 1965, Ratzinger soon became an implacable critic of the excesses in the post-conciliar liturgical reform. At one point he lamented, and I quote, we abandoned the organic living process of growth and development over the centuries and replaced it, 
as in a manufacturing process with a fabrication, a banal on-the-spot product. Abandoning the past and trying to replace it with something that's slapped together in the present is a break. It's a break that Ratzinger tries to correct by developing what he calls a hermeneutic of continuity. A hermeneutic of continuity, as we mentioned in our first session, is the presupposition that what we find after the council is perfectly continuous with what we find in the church before the council and an organic growth from it. There are some celebrations of the ordinary form of the Mass, the Mass revised after the Second Vatican Council, that most people would not be able to distinguish between a celebration of the extraordinary form. All the things, again, that people see as being most characteristic about the revised rites, the ordinary form, in fact, are not intrinsic to them at all. The ordinary form could be celebrated in Latin with incense, with beautiful vestments and vessels, and with the priest facing liturgical east during the Eucharistic prayer. There are many people who wouldn't know the difference between that and the extraordinary form. So again, the most characteristic differences really are external, not intrinsic to the revised rites. While Pope John Paul II was seeking to curb abuses and shore up the Eucharistic faith of the church, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger was opening the doors to a more sober assessment of the post-conciliar reform and its implementation. In the Ratzinger report, his famous interview with the Italian liturgist Vittorio Messori, Cardinal Ratzinger comments on the state of the Catholic faith. There he decrees the impoverishment of the liturgy through the wholesale abandonment of Gregorian chant. And again, you can say the ordinary form, it can be celebrated with Gregorian chant. The loss of the sense of the transcendent, the sacred, and the rejection of external solemnity. And again, all those things could and should be part of the celebration of the ordinary form. Gregorian chant, the transcendent, and solemnity, the sacred. By his willingness to speak out, against the absence, the removal of these factors from sacred worship, Ratzinger not only afforded encouragement to many of the faithful who were grieved by what they saw happening to the liturgy, but he also inspired new efforts to publicize the problems with the liturgical reform and to find avenues for an eventual solution. So he's working towards a solution. How do we solve this impasse? On the constructive side, Ratzinger worked on developing a scriptural and theological foundation for understanding and renewing the liturgy. Through numerous addresses and essays, which have been published in various collections, particularly by Ignatius Press, Ratzinger analyzed the church's liturgical crisis and articulated a proper understanding of the practice of the liturgy. And I'll mention a few of these books as, as they are titled in English translation. The Spirit of the Liturgy. The Feast of Faith, God is Near Us, the Eucharist, the Heart of Life, and a series of essays from a conference called Looking Again at the Question of the Liturgy with Cardinal Ratzinger. Most of these books are actually collections of talks or even homilies that Cardinal Ratzinger gave on various occasions to musicians, to artists, to theologians, to liturgists. The first one that I'll highly recommend to everybody if you want to really enjoy your Christmas break, sit down in front of the fire with the spirit of the liturgy in your hand. 
The Spirit of the Liturgy by Ratzinger. Not by Guardini, but by Ratzinger. The next one is called Feast of Faith. Then God is Near Us, the Eucharist, the Heart of Life. That's God is Near Us, colon, the Eucharist, the Heart of Life. And another one's a collection of essays. He made a couple contributions to this collection, but not all of them. It's called Looking Again at the Question of the Liturgy with Cardinal Ratzinger. Fascinating collection of essays. Now let's turn to Ratzinger's treatment of the spirit of the liturgy. I'd like to say a few words about this wonderful book, which I make all my students read. Ratzinger titles his most groundbreaking work, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Many commentators see this as a tribute or a homage to Romano Guardini, and indeed it is, because Guardini's book was titled The Spirit of the Liturgy. It came out in 1918, part of that early 20th century liturgical movement, you'll recall. Yet in Ratzinger's gentle and gracious manner, he completely turns Guardini's notion of the liturgy upside down, completely turns it on its head. For although Guardini contributed much toward understanding the communal dimension of worship, he fundamentally approached worship from an anthropological perspective or an anthropocentric perspective, that is, as a human thing, as something that human beings do, as a corporate act to be understood in terms of other human activities, such as play and art. You may have heard these things. Note that both playfulness and art are expressions of human creativity. Ratzinger, however, insisted that human creativity cannot be the source of liturgy or of true divine worship. It cannot come from human creativity. Instead of rooting it in something that we do, Cardinal Ratzinger roots sacred worship in a biblical theology beginning most remarkably with the Exodus, the story of the Exodus in the second book of the Bible. Real liturgy, Ratzinger insists, entails some kind of institution. It cannot spring from imagination or our own creativity because it implies a real relationship with another. Now, consider by contrast a sacred worship inspired by God, or that comes from God, one that is brought up by man, one that is an expression of human creativity. This is a false liturgy which... Ratzinger sees in the worship of the golden calf in Exodus 32. So we're back at Exodus. For Ratzinger, this is a subtle apostasy. It is a self-generated cult, a festival of self-affirmation, self-seeking worship, banal self-gratification. This is a warning against any kind of self-initiated and self-seeking worship, a warning against prioritizing the human element and the divine element the divine creativity in liturgy. Why do we say that? Why does Ratzinger say that? Because the people say that they're worshiping the God who brought them out of Israel when they worshiped the golden calf. But they're trying to worship that God their own way. They gather the gold and give it to Aaron, and Aaron makes the golden calf. They eat and drink and rise to play. That's the way they worship and honor the golden calf. Again, it's a banal self-gratification. It's a celebration of nothing but themselves. And while they're doing this, Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law, and they're not waiting for God's directions about how he should be worshipped. Turning to earlier chapters in the book of Exodus, the Bible reveals two purposes of the Exodus from Egypt. These are purposes that Ratzinger draws out. The first is reaching the promised land. Yes, 
But the promised land is not an end in itself. The land is given to the people to be a place for the worship of God. That's the purpose of the land, and that's the purpose of the freedom of the Israelites, which is the second purpose of the Exodus. The land is the first, freedom of worship is the second. This comes out in the conversations between Moses and Pharaoh. They demonstrate that the only goal of the Exodus is worship, which can take place according to God's measure only, and therefore eludes the rules of the game of political compromise. The freedom to give right worship to God is the very essence of the Exodus. If you follow the discussions between Moses and Pharaoh, Moses at first says, let us go out into the desert so that we may worship our God. Pharaoh says, go, but you can't take your animals with you. Moses says, we have to take our animals with us because we don't know how God wants to be worshipped. You see, they can't offer their sacrifices in Egypt because the Egyptians might find those offerings abominable. The Egyptians, like the Hindus, honored certain animals as gods. Imagine trying to sacrifice a cow in a very large Indian city. The results would be similar to some types of animal sacrifices being offered in ancient Egypt. And so the specific purpose that Moses gives to Pharaoh for letting the people go into the desert away from the Egyptians is so that they can freely worship God the way God wants to be worshipped. While we are still considering Exodus, I would like to draw attention to three points that Ratzinger makes in the spirit of the liturgy pertaining to the laws that are revealed to Israel on Mount Sinai, the law. On Sinai, the people receive not only instructions about worship, but also a law of life, a moral law. Worship, law, and ethics, then, are inseparably interwoven in the covenant on Sinai. Worship and law indeed cannot be completely separated from each other. For where God's right to a response from man disappears, the order of law among men is dissolved. Remember that the first of the commandments is, I am the Lord your God, and you shall worship me and honor no other gods before me. The first moral law is actually a law about our duty to God, which is a duty to worship God. Everybody has this duty. It's part of the natural law. You don't get away from it by not being Christian. But again, to review these points that Ratzinger draws out from Sinai, and from the Exodus, God does give very detailed descriptions about how he wants to be worshipped, the kinds of animals to be sacrificed, when they're to be sacrificed, the burnt offerings, the communion offerings, all kinds of different offerings, the, the libations of wine, the grain offerings, the cereal offerings, the oil, on and on. And great detail about the building of the tabernacle, which will be the place where the sacrifices are offered. You cannot read the first books of the Bible and think that God is unconcerned with the details of liturgy. He's extremely concerned with the details of liturgy. These details have to come from him. They can't come from us. When they come from us, we're back at the golden calf. So details of worship come from Sinai, but so too does the moral law. Ratzinger's second point. So the third point then is that the proper worship of God entails following the moral law. You can't have the one without the other. We cannot participate in the worship of God if we're not obeying his moral law. These are all lessons that we find at Sinai in the book of Exodus. So if we're to summarize now the foundational contribution 
that Ratzinger makes in the spirit of the liturgy by reflecting upon Israel's exodus from Egypt, we'll come up with these points. First, liturgy must be divinely established. When it is the product of human creativity, something has gone wrong. Second, liturgy is man's response to God's saving activity. He initiates, we respond. But we can only respond in the way that he calls us to respond. And third, liturgy is intimately connected to law and life. The response that man owes God is not only concerned with the offering of a sacrifice now or then. The proper worship of God cannot be separated from the will to follow and obey the divine law in everyday life. Skipping a number of theological steps, I would like to name several practical issues of liturgical celebration that Ratzinger addresses in his liturgical works, including the spirit of the liturgy. First is the fundamental necessity to preserve the sacrality or sacredness of divine worship. And that was one of those characteristics of divine worship that Pius XII, following Pope St. Pius X, pointed out. Sacred. We have to take steps to preserve that sacred quality. The significance of sacred architecture and sacred art is great in this. The setting for the liturgy, the vessels, the vestments, they all contribute to this sacrality, or, on the other hand, take away from it. Sacred music also is fundamental. Kneeling, postures, he goes through them all in the spirit of the liturgy. But he also mentions, and this is the most controversial of all the sections of the spirit of the liturgy, the altar and the direction of liturgical prayer. And I want to quote from him on this. To the ordinary churchgoer, the two most obvious effects of the liturgical reform of the Second Vatican Council seem to be the disappearance of Latin and the turning of the altars toward the people. Those who read the relevant text will be astonished to learn that neither is in fact defound in the decrees of the council. So let us end our consideration of Ratzinger's liturgical thought before his election to the papacy by once again emphasizing the difference between divinely instituted worship and human-constructed worship. Man himself cannot make worship. If God does not reveal himself, man is clutching empty space. That was a quotation from Ratzinger as well. Here's another. The liturgy derives its greatness from what it is, not from what we make it. And third, this one comes from the Feast of Faith. The creativity involved in manufactured liturgies has a very restricted scope. It is poor indeed compared with the wealth of the received liturgy in its hundreds and thousands of years of history. Unfortunately, the originators of homemade liturgies are slower to become aware of this than the participants. Furthermore, those able to draw up such liturgies are necessarily few in number, with the result that what is freedom for them means domination as it affects others. And I'm sure many of you can sympathize with that. As we sit in the congregations, we're at the mercy of the creativity of those who are involved in the planning of the celebration. That creativity is only given free play to a few. The rest of us grin and bear it, or weep and bear it, whatever the case might be. Continuing with the quotation, in the church's received liturgy, however, there are plenty of opportunities calling for the application of creativity. There is the artistic area, particularly that of music, the organization of the liturgical ministries and the preparation of the liturgical space, 
in ways appropriate to the particular celebration. There's also the area for creativity in the intercessions. Creativity is needed above all in the proclamation of the word. And I'll end the quote there. But obviously homilies are not given to the priest. The homily is in fact the key place for the exercise of individual creativity and ability and gifts and talents that's in every mass that has a homily. One final thought. I've said it before, I'll repeat it one more time. The cardinals who elected Ratzinger to the papacy in 2005 knew his very public stance on the liturgy. They surely have some sympathies with it. So now let's look at Pope Benedict XVI on the liturgy. We've looked at Cardinal Ratzinger. This is the man elected to the See of Peter in 2005. So now let's look at Pope Benedict XVI. First, consider the vision of the Pope's role that Ratzinger actually articulated before he was elected. So this is Ratzinger's view of what the Pope should do vis-a-vis liturgy before he's elected to the papacy. Quote, the Pope is not an absolute monarch whose will is law, but is the guardian of the authentic tradition and thereby the premier guarantor of obedience. He cannot do as he likes and is thereby able to oppose those people who for their part want to do what has come into their head. His rule is not that of arbitrary power, but that of obedience in faith. That is why with respect to the liturgy, he has the task of a gardener, not that of a technician who builds new machines and throws the old ones on the junk pile. The rite that forms that form of celebration and prayer, I'm sorry, which has ripened in the faith and the life of the church is a condensed form of living tradition in which the sphere which uses that rite expresses the whole of its faith and its prayer. And thus at the same time, the fellowship of generations, one with another, becomes something we can experience. In other words, the chief role of the Pope with regard to the liturgy is to preserve it, to act as a gardener, to help it grow, which may require some pruning. This is an excellent expression of the hermeneutic of continuity, to see the liturgy as something which grows naturally through the centuries for the good of the church, and above all, for the glory of God. Now we will turn to a consideration of Pope Benedict XVI's initiatives in the field of liturgy as Pope, and we're going to look at five of them. Did I just say gonna? Sorry about that. I try hard to strive for formal manner of speaking. Of course, I do that because I have children, too. It's already hard to discern words in the din of all the shouting in our household. We don't have very docile children. I think they get it from their mother's fiery nature. (laughs) Okay, I can get away with that when she's not here. So let's look at these initiatives of Pope Benedict XVI's pontificate with regard to liturgy. The first, the example of papal liturgies. He sets an example. The second, subtle moves he has made, particularly through the appointment of ecclesiastics sympathetic with his liturgical vision. So how he shifts people around, who he puts where. The third, authoritative correction of erroneous practices and translations. This is a godsend. There were many decades when we didn't have any correction coming from Rome, no matter how bad the abuse was. 
Number four, insistence on celebration of the liturgy according to the liturgical books and fidelity to the received traditions. The liturgical books become the key to the celebration of the liturgy. You want to celebrate the liturgy, follow the books. That's why the church gives them to us. And number five, freeing the extraordinary form. In other words, making it easier for priests and the faithful to participate in the older 1962 Missal. So let's look now at the first initiative, the example of papal liturgies. Pope Benedict does not want disruption, but he wants continuity. He is not acting radically, but slowly. And this is for the good of the church and for the good of the faithful. We don't need any more major, quick changes. That was devastating, and it will always be devastating to have quick changes in your liturgy and your worship. He shows through his example the direction he'd like us to go, the, the direction he'd like his bishops and his priests to go. Watch a papal mass. Note the beauty and sacrality and dignity of the vestments, for example, of the music. Note the candles. Note the crosses. For Pope Benedict, beauty is not merely a decoration of the liturgy. It is essential to the liturgy. Because if we're going to glorify God, we glorify him with the best we have. If that were not the attitude towards worship, we wouldn't have those beautiful cathedrals from the medieval period. We wouldn't have those beautiful works of art that a Christian culture produced. On every altar at which the Pope now celebrates, the cross is at the very center. This is actually called the Benedictine arrangement after Pope Benedict, although I understand he's not the first ever to have done this. He's setting an example. He puts Christ at the center of every liturgical celebration. So even if the priest must face the congregation, Christ will be the focus of both because the cross will be there on the altar. Benedict XVI also uses seven candles, as is required for pontifical masses, a detail that many bishops don't seem to pay attention to. He faces east at Mass when he offers it in the Sistine Chapel. Holy Communion, however, is perhaps one of the most striking of his examples. The papal master of ceremonies, Monsignor Guido Marini, comments, and this is the current papal master of ceremonies, the method adopted by Benedict XVI tends to underscore the force of the norm valid for the whole church. In addition, one could perhaps also note a preference for using this method of distribution which, without taking anything from the other, better sheds light on the truth of the real presence in the Eucharist. It helps the devotion of the faithful, introduces them more readily to a sense of mystery. Aspects which, in our time, speaking pastorally, it is urgent to highlight and recover. I didn't say the method, but I guess you could guess it now. Uh, the participants who receive directly from the hands of the Pope will receive kneeling and on the tongue under one species only. And once again, as the papal master of ceremonies explains, this better sheds light on the truth of the real presence. It helps the devotion of the faithful, introducing them to the mystery of what's happening more effectively. And these things in our day are things worthy of stressing in any way we can. I think we would all be appalled if we took polls in our Catholic churches regarding belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Some parishes have conducted such polls and have been appalled. 
one of my colleagues is a priest. He jokes. It's not really a joke, but uh, he says, I fear when I give a homily that I'm looking out on a sea of material heretics. In other words, people who actually hold wrong ideas about the faith and about the Eucharist, they're not formal heretics because they don't really know that the ideas are wrong. Nobody's ever taught them. And the example that they see in the Mass doesn't always trumpet belief in the real presence. And finally, another thing that you'll note in papal liturgies is silence, something my wife and I very much appreciate. She once came back to a Mass that she attended by herself, and she said it was horribly disappointing. There was no silence. Why do you think I left the children to go to Mass by myself? Second initiative. So the first is the subtle example that Pope Benedict gives every time he offers the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. The second initiative are moves he makes with regards to appointments. Appointments and canonizations, let me add that. On the 13th of November, 2005, Charles de Foucault was called blessed by Pope Benedict XVI. Now, he is not pushing people through the canonization process as quickly as John Paul II did. Literally hundreds of saints were canonized during the reign of John Paul II. Now, he did reign for a long time, uh, but still the activity has slowed considerably. So what people he does make sure he pushes through, these are going to be important statements. Charles de Foucault was a missionary in North Africa who offered mass by himself every day because despite his greatest of intentions, he never won a single convert. And that mass, again, is a mass in which you have a priest celebrating alone with no communicants. Ideas that are anathema to the radicals in the liturgical movement. Other appointments that he makes. Athanasius Schneider, he appointed Bishop of Celerina in 2006. Now Athanasius Schneider wrote a book entitled Dominus Est, It is the Lord, which actually argued for the reception of communion under one species in the mouth and kneeling. The foreword to this book by Athanasius Schneider, again named a bishop by Benedict XVI. It was a foreword written by Malcolm Rangith, the secretary of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments from 2005 to 2009. Pope Benedict named Rangith a cardinal in the consistory of November 2010, just last year. So these are people who obviously favor his view of reception of Holy Communion. Another example, Father Uwe Michael Lang is the author of a book called Turning Towards the Lord, which argues that the church in all of her history never knew any position other than facing liturgical East for the Eucharistic prayer. He now works for the Congregation for Divine Worship. And I could go on with other examples of people who work for the congregation that have public views that, again, would not be taken well by the more radical uh, branch of the liturgical movement in the mid-20th century. Those are subtle appointments. Now let's move to the third initiative with regard to liturgy. Authoritative correction of erroneous practices and misleading translations. This entails the end of what are called indults. Indults are exceptions to the norms that are given to bishops' conferences upon request. In the past, they were pretty much always given and pretty much never revoked. Benedict XVI, and this is a very quiet thing, he simply says no. I'm not going to renew it. For example, he has ended the indult by which extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion can purify the vessels after Mass or after the distribution of Holy Communion. 
which means now only a priest, a deacon, or an instituted acolyte may purify those sacred vessels. He ended permission for the experimental use of the lectionary for masses with children. I'm so happy for that because children are not that dumb. That particular translation was known as the feed box translation because it read that Mary wrapped the baby in baby clothes and laid him in a feed box. A feed box. Because, of course, children wouldn't know what a manger is. Nobody would ever explain that one to them, I suppose. That was experimental. It was approved for a period of time for an experiment. The experiment failed, and the permission to continue using it was not renewed. Now, we also have a movement toward a new translation of the liturgical texts in keeping with the liturgical tradition. Now, what's the big example of this that many people are upset about, or some people like myself are very excited about? The translation of pro multis. In the words of the consecration of the chalice, the blood of the cup of the new covenant, which will be shed for you and for all, is what we say now. Promultis is actually for many. Now, why is that continuous with the tradition? Because it's always been promultis. In every language, it's promultis, it, or some equivalent, for many. It's never for all. That separates us from the Eastern rites. It separates us from tradition. And it separates us from an accurate translation of our Latin. The translations that are coming are going to be much better just because they're going to be more accurate. I said gonna again. <laughs> they're going to be more accurate. My tongue is tiring. Refusal to extend experimental permission to the U.S. to receive communion under both species. That we are one of the, I think we're the only country. Yes, another indult that was revoked was special permission that the bishops of the United States had to regularly distribute communion under both species. There is one bishop now, Morlino, I believe, who is making slow steps to implement this in his diocese. If you want to see the radical remnants of the liturgical movement in action, read the newspapers and stories, and they will be quoted aplenty because of this very simple thing that he is doing. Uh, do note that the United States of America is the only place where reception under both species is common on a typical Sunday parish mass. This doesn't happen in Europe, in the Orient, in South America. So this does bring us closer to a universal experience of the mass. So the third set of initiatives that we just discussed then are authoritative correction of erroneous practices or the end of experimental indults or permissions for certain things when it becomes clear that they haven't been helping. So the fourth initiative, insistence on celebrating the liturgy according to the liturgical books and fidelity to the received tradition. He's not seeking more change in the liturgical books like Prosper Guéranger. He's actually seeking a serene and sincere implementation of the books that are already in existence. Benedict encourages us to receive liturgy as a gift rather than to seek continuous reform, revision, updating, or changing. Stability is more important than all those things. This is especially evident in Pope Benedict XVI's post-synodal apostolic exhortation on the Eucharist as the source and summit of the church's life and mission. Sacramentum Caritatis, another big title. 
He promulgated that in the year 2007, two years after the bishops had an annual synod devoted to the topic of the Eucharist. Two years later, he produced this document. It is a beautiful document, and it's an expression not only of his concern, but of the concern of a number of people in the episcopate. And in that, he examines the Eucharist under three headings. First of all, it's a mystery to be believed, and he repeats the teachings of the Council of Trent and the Second Vatican Council, and the Catechism, and Pope Paul VI, all in continuity. It's a mystery to be celebrated. And here he talks about the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating, by which he means the art of implementing the liturgies as they are written in the books. And finally, it's a mystery to be lived. Remembering here the connection between law, or morality, and worship that he established when he was looking at the Exodus. That's the fourth initiative, the fourth initiative being to insist on celebration of the liturgy simply according to the liturgical books. The fifth initiative is freeing the extraordinary form. Although Ratzinger accepted the post-conciliar rite, the missal, the mass, he never concealed his abiding love for the pre-conciliar liturgy. This was not just nostalgia, but a view informed by the hermeneutic of continuity. He did not see it as a challenge or a rupture. As cardinal, he did not hesitate to associate himself with those who worked hard to preserve and maintain the preconciliar rite. What are the reasons for this bold gesture that he makes to enable every priest to celebrate according to the extraordinary form? I'm going to be guided in this by Bishop Mark Aye, who wrote a small book on the topic. The first reason is unity. This is an extension of charity for the many people who remain strongly attached to the usage of the older rite. Number two, it's an opportunity to ennoble the Ars Celebrandi through mutual enrichment of both rites. And I'll just put it this way. A priest who knows how and is sympathetic with and willing to offer the extraordinary form will necessarily offer the ordinary form in a way that's more continuous with the tradition, with more dignity more sacrality, more care. Now let me summarize Pope Benedict XVI's initiatives in the field of liturgy that we just looked at. There were five of them. First, the example of papal liturgies. Second, the subtle moves he has made in canonizations and also the appointments of people to positions. Third, correction of erroneous practices and end to experiments, promotion of the new translations. Fourth, insistence on celebration of the liturgy according to the liturgical books as they exist. And fifth, freeing the extraordinary form so it can act as a sort of leaven on the celebration of the Roman rite everywhere. In these ways, our Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, is spearheading a true liturgical restoration in keeping with the Second Vatican Council as read through a hermeneutic of continuity. Let us pray for the success of this liturgical renewal and do all that we can to facilitate it. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you very much, Doctor. We'll take a short break, three to four minutes for those that can stay around for Q&A. Liturgy is the opportunity for us to love God and as a result also to love each other. Unfortunately, it has become the battleground of our religion. It's a tragedy. 
It's one of the greatest tragedies that has taken place, I think, in, in our lifetime. And so I ask you here, while we're at the Institute of Catholic Culture, be charitable. Yes, you might appreciate the extraordinary form. You might appreciate the ordinary form. The most important thing is that you appreciate the gift of God's love for us and that you seek to return that to Him. And if that's the principle by which you worship God, then liturgy, proper liturgy, done right, will follow suit. Okay? So I ask you with that rule, please make your questions charitable, and we'll all have a good time. If the indult for receiving communion under both species in the United States has been rescinded, how can we continue to do it? Well, indults are given for a specific period of time. And this one has ended, which means there is no authority except the force of local custom. The local custom, when it belongs to only one small part of the church, and I know it's our world, uh, but the United States really is just one small part of the universal Catholic church, it does not have the force of law. So if the practice continues, it continues by force of custom, and it really shouldn't. But there are many things that shouldn't be happening, but that do simply because to following that rule of a charity, to enforce them might be more dangerous than to just simply allow them to continue. That's a decision that the bishop has to make. That's a decision the bishop has to make. As you can see, only one bishop in the United States thus far has attempted to, even in a small way, enforce this. And the whole propaganda machine of the left wing is jumping on him right now. So the others are going to watch and wait and see how that works out, I'm sure, before they start trying. Can you speak about the custom of wearing chapel veils and their use in the liturgy in the past and in the present? Oh, boy. You're really trying to get me in trouble. <laughs> well, we find it in sacred scripture. St. Paul says that women should pray with their heads covered. I know Cardinal Burke has said something about this recently, and if I'm following him correctly here. It's a beautiful custom. There's scriptural precedent. Wonderful thing to do, but we don't want to have to mandate it for everybody. Yeah, I can't, this is not something which is determined by church law right now. Can I just add a point to that, please? That oftentimes we look for, and this is something that our Holy Father has been very clear about, as uh, I, you gave us a really good quote on that. We always look for the, the church to step in, the authority to step in, to say how it is and how it should be done. But in the end, charity, and I said it before, but charity must win the day. That has to be restored within the liturgy. And so a question about chapel veils or about Latin or about this or that other thing, ultimately it cannot be something that's imposed from above because if it is, then we're going to damage the very people we're trying to help. It has to be a restoration of the love of God within us and then we're going to seek to do the right things always in big ways and in little ways. I might add too that that, that custom transformed in the early 20th century among even a lot of Protestant groups, into wearing hats. So that's when the women started competing as to who could have the most beautiful hat in the service. Then the head would still be covered for the service. I have a, uh, maybe a controversial but simple question. How does the presentation and the complexity, for me, I'm an engineer, but I find this extremely complex, uh, the 
you know, very scholarly. But how does it compare to uh, parables of Jesus in the New Testament and the Pharisees and all the rules and the complexity that they have? And I think that's a fair question. I, di I didn't get the first part. What am I comparing to the Pharisees? And well, you know, you, you hear the Sermon on the Mount, you hear the parables, and Jesus was always trying to simplify things, make it easy for everybody to understand. Right. And so what I find is it's, uh, you know, the history and the uh, stability of the, the tradition of the Catholic Church, I think, is a noble goal. Uh, but uh, I think you can get so caught up in um, terminology and so forth that you lose sight of something simple that just the, the moral values. And I, that's, you know, it can get so scholarly, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm losing my focus on um, what is it, what are we all about? I mean, just to me, it's a very simple thing uh, that I've been in other denominations other than the Catholic Church, to be honest with you guys. I, my mom has been in the Catholic Church for a long time, and I, I, I do see a lot of value in what you're saying with the continuity, and you don't want to uh, create things that, and make it confusing. Well, I don't really disagree with anything you said. Um, I don't see it as being incompatible with anything that I said. Uh, or with, I guess I don't, I don't quite understand the contrast, but let me just start from the parables. Parables actually don't make everything clear. But the parables, in fact, are, are ways of using symbols and situations that are things we might experience or understand from our experiences on earth in order to invite somebody into a mystery which is much deeper than those. So even while on the surface level parables seem simple, in fact they're not. Uh, there are many, many layers on which those parables should be interpreted. And the same thing can be said of liturgical symbols. And words are symbols, by the way. Something like Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, seems simple on the surface, but you can get so deep into that and meditating into that. I mean, you could chant it for hours and never really claim that you plumbed the depths of it. On the other hand, if you're talking about a drive for simplicity in liturgy, that's one of the things that the Second Vatican Council wanted. So when you look at the ordinary form, there are tons of ways that it has been simplified. For example, you have many fewer signs of the cross, many fewer genuflections. Eucharistic prayers, in some cases, have been made shorter. The rubrics have been made more simple. You don't have the prayers at the foot of the altar. You don't have the gospel reading afterwards. In other words, there was a great effort to simplify the services to make them more readily comprehensible. And to a certain extent, that's effective. On the other hand, as any teacher knows, you haven't taught somebody something simply by telling them. And sometimes it's more effective to teach through parables and symbols, even ornate ones, than it is to come out and just teach. And again, if I use a parable to teach a child something, he's far more likely to get the point and think about it than if I just tell him straight up the moral. <laughs> Considering the different periods of reform that you spoke about yesterday evening and this evening, um, what would you say historically are the criteria for proper liturgical uh, reform and how exactly do particular rites or usages like the Ambrosian usage or the Dominican usage play into that reform? 
Those are really two distinct questions. Let me start with the first. That's the key. How can you distinguish between a reform that's in continuity and a reform that's in rupture? There's a long book on this topic by Elkwin Reed called The Organic Development of the Liturgy. And part of what he's trying to do is actually formulate what it is that would count as an organic development. And he contrasts an organic development to what he calls a root and branch reform. So an organic development has to somehow or other grow out of something that's already in existence and in use. If you take what's already in existence and in use and you uproot it and throw it away and replace it with something else, that clearly is not an organic development. In between there, you have a lot of subtleties that could be discussed in great detail. The second question you asked is about uh, relation of the other rites in the West to organic development, I guess you might say. They all have an organic development and genius of their own, or they should. The Milanese rite is as old as Ambrose of Milan, which means it's at least 1,600 years old. You've got a Dominican rite, which goes back to the foundation of the Dominicans in the 13th century, a Carthusian rite, which goes back to the Middle Ages as well. We do have a number of rites in the West. The Mozarabic rite goes back to the patristic period, which actually grew out of apostolic tradition, and these were in continuous use for a couple hundred years at least by the time of the Council of Trent. When the new missal was promulgated by Pope St. Pius V, he said that any rite which has been in continuous use for 200 years or more may be retained. That included all the rites that I just mentioned, which indeed still are retained. A number of them have actually been revised in the last century as well. And again, you're going to have to look at all those revisions and how they take place and how drastic they are in order to ask questions or answer that question of are they continuous or are they not continuous. They, they each kind of have their own genius. They'll all look familiar to us because they'll resemble very closely the Roman Rite, but there will be particularities about them. Going back to uh, Galcanism, you indicated that it was limited to France and uh, the devolution of you know, the chaos that you know, happened with all the various dioceses and their own interpretations of the missiles. You also mentioned in Austria-Hungary the uh, Josephism. Why was it limited to those areas? Why did this situation not expand further throughout Europe? Well, it did, but first of all, you have to understand the particular nature of Galicanism is that it tends to be founded on the ancient privileges and rights of the Church of France. And so the, they're actually appealing to a very old tradition, a patristic tradition. There had been a church in France from early Roman times. Uh, Irenaeus of Lyon comes to mind immediately. He's in the second century. So the, there was a, a kind of nationalistic characteristic about it. Now, Gallicanism also was different for different constituencies. For example, there was a Gallicanism of bishops, a Gallicanism of doctors, theological doctors, a Gallicanism of the king. Okay? Now, when we get to the king, we'll see how Gallican principles would look attractive to other rulers because they basically mean, hmm, a way that I can cut off the local clergy from Rome, make them more dependent upon myself, and keep church money in my lands. Now, that would be where it becomes Josephism. Now, sometimes there's a genuine desire on the part of world leaders, uh, rulers, to actually implement some kind of liturgical reforms as well as theological reforms, but they follow the same principle. You had that in Italy with the Synod of Pistoia, for example. We had in North America 
late 19th century, a heresy called Americanism. They each have a particular genius because they're really, in a sense, nationalistic movements. And there's always a danger. For example, do you want to say that we're the Catholic Church of the United States of America? Or are we the Catholic Church in the United States of America? In other words, are we identifying ourselves as Catholics first or as Catholics of a certain nationality? And do we want to dwell upon the genius of our brand of Catholicism? That would be the Americanist heresy. It was actually condemned. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming the last two nights. I appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.